This episode brought to you by the Velvet Hammer Podcast. This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. My name is Matthew Kerbis, and I'm filling in for the host of Young Lawyer Rising, Sonia Russo. You may recognize my dulcet tones from the regular segment of this podcast, the Financial Wellness Minute. If you heard last week's episode on financial wellness, you learned that I'm a private practice attorney at Condon & Cook in Chicago. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode, cue it up to play right after you're done listening to this episode. For today's episode, I decided to focus in on a topic near and dear to my heart, legal education. I've been involved with legal education, not just as a former law student, but I used to represent every law student at ABA accredited law schools when I was the ABA law student division chair. And then I went on to represent young lawyers as their liaison to the ABA section of legal education and admissions to the bar. For my deep dive on legal education, I invited Kyle McEntee, the co-founder and executive director of law school transparency onto the show for a one-on-one conversation. We talk about several aspects of legal education, including what works and what's wrong with legal education. Spoiler alert, it's related to the cost of legal education, the impact that has on what the profession looks like, and what young lawyers can do about it. We also discuss law school rankings, online law school, and the future of law licensing. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Hey, everyone. I'd like to welcome Kyle McEntee from Law School Transparency. Kyle, welcome to the podcast, Young Lawyer Rising. Ah, thanks. Always great to talk with you. So Kyle, you and I have been working together in legal education for a number of years while I've been the liaison to the section of legal education, which is something else I do for the listeners. I don't just do the financial wellness minute segment at the end of most of our episodes. Uh, So I've gotten to know uh, you pretty well, Kyle, over these years. But for our listeners, if they have not heard of you, go ahead and just give yourself an introduction and tell our listeners a little bit about law school transparency. Sure. So I've been running Law School Transparency since 2009 when I co-founded it with Patrick Lynch during law school. Basically, I was seeking job statistics during my application process. And at that time, Patrick and I figured out that schools were publishing employment stats uh, that were deceptive, if not outright dishonest, uh, with the ABA's blessing. So we endeavored to put an end to it. And successfully did so. You know, not not us alone, but we, we played a very big role. And then all of a sudden, our tiny organization had this outsized voice. And since then, we've been trying to apply that voice to various problems in legal education and making a difference. So before we get into maybe some problems that unfortunately still persist today, in your opinion, what does legal education get right? <laughs> um, it, gets a, it's, it gets a lot right. I think it's important to start with that, uh, to say that there are a lot of people involved in legal education that are very committed to the rule of law, to access to justice, to diversifying our profession, to ensuring that you know anyone who needs a lawyer has a lawyer. We are falling short on a lot of these, but I don't think the commitment can be in doubt. So that's good to hear that we get most things right. But that being said, what's maybe one of the most glaring problems that legal education is facing right now, in your opinion? 
Law school is simply unaffordable for the vast majority of people who are attending. And that's a huge problem. It impacts the career trajectories people can take once they're in the profession. And I also think it impacts who's applying to law school. And I don't think we're really getting all the people we need into the profession that we need to. And a big part of it comes down to how much it costs. So I'm a young lawyer. I mean, is there like, what can I do about the cost <laughs> of, of legal education? Is there anything I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would have loved to have spent way less money. And that's coming from someone who I am so glad I picked this profession. And for me, it was just barely worth the cost <laughs> yeah. of admission, but that's because I happen to be fortunate that I picked the right career path for me and not everyone's necessarily in that situation. So what, what can I do? What can other young lawyers do about the cost of legal education, if, if anything? Yeah, it's tough. These are major structural problems, and they're not really able to be solved by any individual person. Maybe one of the problems with law school is that it produces people who think that they could solve any problem that's in front of them. And because young lawyers went to law school, they think, oh, I, I have the answers. So really, I think the best thing young lawyers can do is provide money to the cause, because unless they have actual expertise that, like, for example, you've developed, there's not too much that can be done. That said, I, I do think that there is some kind of role as an ambassador to people who want to go to law school, setting them up with the right information, uh, making sure that they're considering the costs and benefits from a dollars and cents perspective, making sure that the students that you talk to have an idea of what lawyers actually do and encouraging them to go learn more about various practice areas and practice settings. That way they can make an informed choice about where to go and then where to have a career and end up more satisfied regardless of the cost. So, of course, these young lawyers helping the next generation of young lawyers pursue their dreams of practicing law or being an attorney, doing whatever they're going to do as an attorney, uh, of course, you know, they should go to law school transparency as one of those resources to look to. They should help the future lawyers, young lawyers should point them to that resource. But since you're here representing law school transparency, what are, what are maybe some other resources and websites available that you would recommend in addition to law school transparency that that young lawyers help point the future generation of attorneys to? I think the first place to start, at least when it comes to job outcomes and salaries and using that to understand the value proposition would be NALP and looking at NALP's research. Now, NALP's research is at the labor market level. So they're looking at how is an entire entry-level class performing on salaries? So how much are they making? What kind of jobs are they getting? just to kind of get a big picture view of what the value proposition looks like while recognizing that you do need that individualized information to get a better feel for how each school fits into the labor market. And each school fits in differently. Uh, that's because there's significant differences in reputation. And there's also a significant pattern of people getting jobs where they actually go to law school. So it rarely makes sense to go to school in California if you want to work in Illinois and vice versa. Some other resources, I think the ABA section of legal education, if you go to, I think it's abaquestionnaire.org, but that's the, the raw data that all law schools are required to publish and that the ABA publishes. There's data related to LSAT, GPA, so you know at the entry-level statistics. There's details related to bar passage and diversity and job outcomes. 
it's not organized the best. It really is more about the ABA saying, here are the raw data, do with it what you please. And then it's up to organizations like mine to say, All right, here's a different way to think about it, or here's how to organize it in a pretty way that actually turns the data into consumer information. And I'm glad you brought that up because I remember looking at what law schools to apply to. And, and I went to Indiana University for undergrad, and we have one of the largest, we call them law fairs, where you go and you look at all the law schools and, and we get you know almost half, if not more than half the law schools out to, to IU. And at all these tables, you know, they have these 509 reports and to a you know, college student who has a lot of other things on their mind, uh, it just looks like gobbledygook. And I, I remember getting them and maybe understanding some of it, but not really understanding all of it. And while well, I understand there's been some improvements over the years with how they publish that, tell us a little bit about what Law School Transparency does to help better understand those data. So as you point out, it, it can be really overwhelming. And a big part of our task is to figure out what is it we should emphasize and draw people's attention to. And there's two parts to that. One is getting people's attention with the numbers. So that way they kind of start with the, the big high level figures and then realize that they can dig deeper and see more about what they mean. The other is making choices about what to present and where, and then defining what those things mean in a way that actually makes sense to someone who is unfamiliar with the data. And one of the things we're actually doing over the next few weeks is we're releasing a significant number of video explainers about data and how to use the data to apply to law school, choose a law school, figure out the value proposition, and understand what lawyers actually do and how much they make. And our thinking is that this can really enhance admissions equity and kind of level the playing field. So people have the better information on the front end, and then from there, make better choices that will lead to more satisfied, informed careers. I think that all sounds excellent and it can't come soon enough. I, again, I wish I had that sort of thing available to me when I was applying to law school. I can't tell you how many lawyers say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So then as far as these explainer videos are concerned, I mean, is there anything that, you know, young lawyers can do to help when it comes to, you know, making them, helping share them? What could our listeners do as far as, you know, helping out with these explainer videos in one way or another? Yeah, I really think it's going to come down to getting eyeballs on them. And so for us, the biggest help from young lawyers would be when you're talking to that applicant, send them to law school transparency and say, this is an organization that is dedicated to helping you make your best choice and helping you peer beneath the surface and look past the U.S. news rankings and figure out, based on your ambitions, based on your risk tolerance, what school or not is going to be your best option. And telling them that it is good to engage with the data, to not be afraid of it, to realize that there are a lot of different paths that they can take, but that they should be informed about that some are easier and some are harder than others. Right, right. And that's great that there is that opportunity for young lawyers to come in and, and just help share that information. Because like you said, the cost of legal education is so much the problem. And organizations like yours, you know, they need the financial backing and support to keep doing the good work that they're doing. But of course, the young lawyers have these, <laughs> you know, student loans to pay off. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, I'm sure any amount helps as far as donations are concerned. And LST is a 501c3, correct? We are. And it is really not my favorite thing to fundraise. Like, it is actually the least favorite thing to do. I want to just make stuff. 
and do policy. But unfortunately, that's not <laughs> the world we live in. Yeah. And, and, you know, we get that. And, but sometimes, you know, young lawyers have connections to, uh, to people or foundations or other organizations that have education as something that they support. And so, you know, to the extent young lawyers have those connections, I'm sure that would help out LST and other organizations like yours. Yeah, absolutely. We're actually in talks with uh, one of the largest firms in the country. I won't name them yet about a, a actually fairly substantial commitment of financial resources on the theory that the only way for corporations and law firms to really make the impact that they want in the long term on the diversification of the profession, it starts with the pipeline. And in the pipeline, there are issues of admissions equity, whether it's access to high quality information and advising, or it's the amount that students of color, for example, pay for law school. They pay more than their white counterparts. And we actually see similar patterns for, for women as well. But to actually tackle these admissions equity issues, the firms recognize that these are structural issues that we're working on and that for their overall goals of diversifying the profession, diversifying their law firms and who staffs their cases, it starts at the pipeline. So we've talked about maybe one of the biggest problems in legal education, and that is the cost. And we've talked about some tangible steps that at least young lawyers can take and look at as to how they can help with that. And, and the pipeline is one of those things to focus on. But taking a, just a small pivot here, Kyle, what is one of the most important things other than the cost of legal education? So not, not so much a problem necessarily, though maybe it is, uh, but what's just one of the most important things about legal education right now? And what should our listeners know about it? And what could they do about it? I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, and that it relates to tuition discounting. That is the scholarships that schools are providing. And I just think it's atrocious that law schools are charging students of color more than their white counterparts. The fact that students of color pay more for law school also contributes to their greater debt burdens. And then to make matters worse, they also tend to attend law schools with significantly worse job outcomes, which means worse access to law opportunities, networks, and resources. And I think this doesn't comport with what law faculty and law school administrators think of themselves as doing. And I think these individuals within the schools need to confront their pricing practices and think seriously about what's motivating them. And one thing I think young lawyers can do is ask at their schools, is this happening here? And then if the school says no, say, can you show me the data proving to me that there is not a price inequity problem at this school? Because we have lots of evidence at the national level that this is a problem, that students of color do pay more for law school, do borrow more for law school. And of course, you know, that compounds the well-known problems in practice, namely that Black and Hispanic lawyers, as well as women, often draw smaller paychecks for comparable work, receive fewer opportunities for promotion and leadership. And then, of course, encounter other indicia of bias that limit their career trajectories and career satisfaction. And I think really holding the school's feet to the fire on this is really important. So in other words, what we can do is we can have our young lawyers out there just put the pressure on their alma mater, essentially, is one, another thing that, that young lawyers can do. Absolutely. It's asking, is this who we are? And I think that's a great spot for us to take a break. We'll be right back. The Velvet Hammer podcast is a down and dirty look at what really makes trial lawyers tick. Nationally recognized and award-winning plaintiff attorney, 
Karen Kohler is an aggressive, charismatic, and dominating litigator wrapped up in a sweet little mommy-grandma package. Her colorful stories teach lessons drawing upon 35 years of experience, including the sensational four-month Ride the Duck trial in Seattle. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcasting app. And we're back. So I want to talk to you next, Kyle, about something that a lot of people talk about that are considering law school, employers think about this, the law schools care about this, and that is law school rankings. <laughs> you, have you ever talked about law school rankings before, Kyle? Never. This will be my first time. <laughs> so um, tell me, and, and just on the off chance that you get some people listening in on this, maybe they're, they're considering law school, whether they're you know, in high school or college, or they're thinking about another career, and they've never heard of rankings before. Without promoting them necessarily, let's talk about uh, maybe the the problem with law school rankings and just maybe paint a, a little picture for somebody who hasn't yeah. dealt with that before. Sure. So the U.S. News law school rankings, they're the elephant in the room. Uh, so U.S. News follows an ordinal ranking system. And in an ordinal system, one is better than two, two is better than 30. And what's attractive about it to people trying to make decisions is that it turns a chaos of information into a single number for each school. And that simplicity is what makes the rankings appear so authoritative and valuable. And then each year, the law school world overreacts to slightly shuffled rankings, which somehow justifies the rankings authority and value in this like backwards sort of way. But you know, nevertheless, law school administrators, they are committed to this rankings rat race through their statements, their actions, their inaction. And you know, deans tell me often, you know, I have to make choices that are good for the rankings, but bad for my law school. And so you can see, like, as a direct result, these rankings do play a role in increasing legal education costs and decreasing the commitment schools can have to access affordability and curricular innovation. But don't employers also care about it? So shouldn't I care as somebody who's going to law school, you know, what my school rank is? Shouldn't I just accept whatever opportunity I get at the highest ranked school? No. So I don't think there's actually any good evidence that employers care about movement year to year. So if school X goes from nine to 10, I don't think that's going to affect at all which firms are going to hire from that school. Instead, what we're seeing is that the very top of the rankings, so the top you know, 15 to 20 schools, do have a reputational advantage over all other schools. But you don't have to look to the rankings to get that information. And if you're looking to the rankings to get that information, then you're missing something. You're missing something related to, is the cost worth it? So should you pay for number six full price or should you pay nothing for number 10? And if you're just thinking, well, six is better than 10, I should go to six and everyone says I have to go to six to get the best job. Well, look at the job numbers and see, is this actually the case or is there really not that much difference in the placement opportunities at that school? And so, you know, the rankings, again, they can be pretty helpful to you if you're only looking at the very top of the heap. But there are 200 law schools in total. So we're talking another 90% of schools where rankings should not be a factor. That's not to say that there aren't a number of schools that are a bad deal. I will absolutely tell you that is the case, that there are a lot of schools that are a bad deal for a lot of people. And some of those schools will be a good deal for some people in certain circumstances. What really should be going into your decision, though, is where are these graduates going to work? And if you want to work in California, 
go to a school that has some empirical relationship to California. Usually those are the schools that actually are located in California, but sometimes they're in the states that are adjacent to it, or sometimes a few states away with less of a legal market. The point is you can actually identify geographical placement pretty easily with the ABA numbers. And that's one of the things we're trying to do with law school transparency is operationalize those data and help people use it to make choices that actually make sense for themselves. Uh, but yeah, back to the rankings, like it might be helpful at the top, but if you're choosing number 40 over number 60, because 40 is higher than 60, you might luck into the right decision for yourself, but you're not doing so on an informed basis. Uh, you know, my perspective on it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but because the rankings is, is a little bit of a black box, you know, there's some things that we kind of know schools need to do for the rankings. They just end up spending more money. And that's one of the reasons why to bring it back to our earlier conversation, the cost of legal education is just too high. And some of it, I think, has to do with all the spend to get higher up and improve your ranking as a school. Um, and if all the schools just stopped caring about it and stopped that spend, they could focus on efficiency and providing a good, j just the best legal education that they can. Am, am I correct in that sort of assessment? Yeah, I, I don't know that I would call it a black box because the methodology is transparent. But what we do know is that schools look at the methodology and allocate resources according to it. So for example, the expenditures per student metric uh, rewards schools that spend more money per student under the premise that a school that is spending more money is a higher quality education because they're spending more to do so. It turns out that that's not true, but that's what the rankings reward. Uh, similarly, the rankings reward higher LSAT medians and higher GPA medians. And while there is a relationship between LSAT and GPA and especially the index between the two and performance in law school, it is somewhat predictive. Even LSAC will tell its member schools and, and tell students and tell researchers, you shouldn't overlook into one, two, three point differences, right? But yet when you look at how schools allocate scholarships, they are doing so on the basis of one or two LSAT points or 0.05 difference in GPA, which is, again, not meaningful on the individual level, but makes a really big impact at the structural level when you're looking at how it causes schools to design scholarship programs, whether it's a conditional scholarship program where they're trying to get people in early and then take away some of their money, or a non-conditional program that just is going to bias white men. Like, like me and you. I, yes, yes, I, I know, I know. So then what can we do to change the incentives of schools if they're not just going to do it themselves? Yeah, so we're, we're taking kind of a, a three-pronged approach to this. So we have been working with U.S. News to lessen the damage of the rankings, which is really just another way of saying to make the rankings better. Under the theory that if you can't beat them, join them or at least until you beat them, join them. The, the second kind of pathway for change is changing the narrative. And this is where I think young lawyers can really help. And that is when your school drops in the rankings, don't email your dean saying, what the hell is happening at this school? Email the dean and say, I know this doesn't reflect all the good things that this school is doing and the changes that you're trying to make. How can I help you not have so many stakeholders coming at you with pitchforks? And then the third pathway is changing the market. And so this is really about changing competition 
and changing the nature of student and school decision-making. And so one of the things we've talked about relates to that already, which is our resources are designed to help students make choices that are informed, that will help them spend less for law school and get a school that is a better fit for them. So that's like one half of it. But the other half is looking at what are the incentives that we can create for schools that validate the values that they espouse and the achievements that they achieve. <laughs> that's not artfully worded, but that are not traditionally rewarded by US News or any other market maker. Um, in other words, we're going to try to create new markets. And we've actually managed to do that on transparency uh, over the last decade. And I think we can do it in the areas of access, affordability, and innovation as well. So one, one of the things that I think can help with affordability of legal education is online law school done right. What are your thoughts about the future of online law school? I think the future of online law school is bright. That's not to say that everyone will want to go to an online law school, that everyone will thrive in an online law school. But I think it's important that schools have the opportunity to organize themselves and structure themselves in a way that lets them meet different goals. And that means an accreditation framework that is less restrictive than the one we have today. And I know that's something you, you and I have talked about a lot. And given your, your role as a liaison for the council, uh, it's something you've thought about deeply as well. Yes, for the, the young lawyers out there who have not been participating in the YLD Assembly, uh, there was a resolution that I drafted on young lawyer support for online law school uh, accreditation. And it's just sort of a, a soft nudge to the ABA council that, hey, any changes you all can make to the, to the rules and the standards that would permit online law school done right and, you know, leave it to the experts sort of a thing, that the young lawyers division supports that. So yes, I'm, I'm all about it. And I think, yeah. I think with the pandemic, there's so much learning that can be done about what worked, what didn't work. Of course, we're looking at all brick and mortar institutions having to move to online. And there's a lot of opportunity for innovation, potentially, for just schools that don't have the brick and mortar you know, anchor weighing them down. But we'll see what happens. I'm hopeful about it as well. Yeah. And I'll take a little bit more of an aggressive stance on that, which I guess will surprise few people. And that's, I think the ABA standards need to be reworked from the ground up. Uh, I mentioned that they're too restrictive in some ways, but they're also too permissive in others. And I think if there were more accountability on student learning, meaning if schools were more clearly defining student learning outcomes, describing how they assess them, and then proving to employers and regulators that they're doing so, that people would have fewer fears about online education and wondering, is this actually something that can achieve what we expect out of law school. But at the same time, schools are also free to avoid that accountability and student learning today with the brick and mortar institutions. And we're applying different standards to online schools than we are to the brick and mortar ones. And I don't want to use the word antitrust, but I've heard that um, described persuasively several times. And so I, I think that is a, a serious concern for the standards as they're written now, that they are not permitting competition in the way that they, they ought to be. So with that, I think we'll end on a softball question for you, Kyle. And we don't really, uh, you and I haven't really talked too much about this. And, and you know, forgive me for not knowing LST's position on it, if you take a position on it as an organization. But the softball question is, should we have a bar exam? So we need a licensure system that protects the public, but is equitable 
and actually measures minimum competence. I think consumer protection is incredibly important, but also that licensing shouldn't be arbitrary or used to exclude competition. And notice I'm talking about licensure and not bar exam. Bar exam is part of our licensure process. And I think there's reason to think that it's going to continue, even if the best arguments are made against it. Uh, and so I think it's worth thinking about what are the alternative licensure paths that we might see crop up in, in various states and then seeing other states learn from that over time. There's been a big push for the diploma privilege movement. And you know, I, I think in theory, it's a, a great idea that why shouldn't law school be enough to ensure that you can get licensed, uh, at least with some character and fitness qualifications. That said, until schools are held more accountable by the ABA in terms of learning outcomes and assessment, we're not going to actually ever see any movement on that. And so the diploma privilege movement, if it wants to succeed, it has to start with ABA accreditation reform. Well, Kyle, thanks so much for coming on Young Lawyer Rising. Uh, I appreciate it so much. Tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about law school transparency and support its mission. Yeah, go to lawschooltransparency.com and there's lots of information and the site will be changing probably within a few days of this episode airing. So keep an eye out because we're, we're making the site much better, unifying all of our brands and helping people understand the role we play in legal education and, and making it better. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you to Kyle McEntee for joining me on this episode. To close out the show, I've got another, you guessed it, Financial Wellness Minute. On our last Financial Wellness Minute, we discussed tracking what you own to make sure you have the right insurance coverage limits for your personal property. For our longtime listeners, you know our first Financial Wellness Minute was about pet insurance. Today, I'm going to cover another topic, and that's life insurance. What is life insurance, and why do you need it? Well, let's be reasonable. Life insurance isn't going to be for everyone. But let's focus on what it's good for, and the decision whether you want to go out and purchase life insurance will be left up to you. So what is life insurance? Life insurance is an insurance product that pays out death benefits when you die, assuming you've paid all of your premiums and didn't otherwise breach your contract. Young lawyers should already know this, but it's worth repeating to always, always read your insurance contract to understand your coverage and exceptions to coverage for whatever type of insurance you're buying. There are two main types of life insurance, term life and permanent life. Term life insurance is for a set amount of years, such as 10 or 20. Permanent life, also known as whole life or universal life, is insurance coverage that covers the rest of your life as long as you continue to make premium payments and otherwise comply with your policy terms. Context matters, but generally speaking, life insurance is a way to help your loved ones pay for funeral expenses or as temporary income replacement after you're gone. How much coverage you need or want to get depends on your circumstances and should be discussed with a licensed insurance producer. Term insurance typically has lower premiums because it's for only a limited term. If you are relatively young and in good health, you would be surprised to see just how low an annual premium could be for a half a million to a $1 million policy. The premiums are calculated based on someone's age, medical health history, and whether they are a smoker or non-smoker. Even though permanent life policies are typically more expensive, there are other benefits that come with it, such as having a cash value feature. So to sum it up, I recommend you get life insurance. 
especially if you're supporting a spouse or child, regardless of the policy you decide to get. Because life insurance isn't about you, it's about the people you leave behind. This Financial Wellness Minute is brought to you by the ABA YLD Student Loan Debt and Financial Wellness Team. Young Lawyer Rising is for young lawyers by young lawyers. Kyle and I discussed some actionable steps that current young lawyers can take regarding their alma maters and for future young lawyers. Since there's a lot of good stuff in this conversation for future young lawyers, please share this episode with anyone you know considering law school. And if you found this content valuable, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or the highest rating on your app of choice in order to help others discover this podcast. This episode was written by me and produced by me and Lawrence Coletti. Edited and mixed by Adam Lockwood. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kerbis filling in for Sonia Russo. And this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. Music